We're going to be looking today at a message I call an offering that pleases God. Let's stand together as we look in Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. And may God bless the reading of his word today as my prayer. You may be seated. Malachi chapter 3 is a prophecy of the coming of the Lord, not once but twice. Uh, the second time God stated it for emphasis, behold, he is coming. And uh, the introduction uh, started with the one who was called simply my messenger. There was no doubt who that was, none other than John the Baptist. Behold, I send my messenger who will prepare the way of the Lord. Another famous prophecy simply called him the voice, the voice. Isaiah 40 and 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. John the Baptist was preparing a highway for the Lord to come to men. Specifically, he would come, of course, to the Jewish people. His ministry was both, uh, the ministry of John the Baptist, I would say, was both a promise and a preview of what was to come through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he spent his whole ministry saying, I'm not the one, I'm not the one. There's one coming after me, and I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. He pointed men to the coming of Jesus Christ. And because he did that work and did it so well, it was compared to the building of a highway, a highway where the mountains were blasted off and used to fill in the valleys, a, mount, a highway where... All the curves were straightened out. I saw kind of a, a building project like that take place when I lived in Branson, between Branson and Springfield, when Highway 65 was widened to a four-lane. Uh, and when they got that project finished, and yes, they did finish it. Isn't that amazing? Uh, no offense, Luke, uh, just, or any of the other highway department employees here today. It just They did finish, and they finished in a timely manner, and when it was done, it was a beautiful, wide, four-lane highway that allowed you to go as fast as a speed limit would allow, mostly. <laughs> you could make a speedy trip to Branson, from Branson to Springfield and back again. That was a good thing. Uh, you see, the emphasis then on that highway is revealed in the Scripture because 
Jesus was going to come suddenly, suddenly to his temple. That's what he said. His appearance in the temple would be unexpected. It's much like when you're in the house, ladies, and you think your husband is gone, and all of a sudden he walks in, and he was there. Usually that doesn't end well. Uh, I mean, it's a scary kind of thing. Oh, well, somebody's here. It's a scary thing. And the appearance of Jesus in his temple would be just like that. He would come suddenly. He would just appear there, and that's exactly what happened. It's kind of ironic in a way because uh, God says you have delighted in his coming. He's coming, the one you've delighted in. And certainly, they had long anticipated the appearance of the Messiah. When he arrived, they weren't looking for him. They didn't think it was time. And they soon rejected him. He wasn't what they expected him to be. But he came suddenly. When when our text says he is coming, we can still take that today you see he was coming when Malachi promised it he's still coming we live today in anticipation of the return of Jesus Christ ironically though we ourselves delight in the coming of the Lord the Bible promises us that we too are going to be surprised when he shows up his coming will be as a thief in the night Right up front then, the prophet relates God's word to them as to his objective and purpose. Why was he coming? Malachi chapter 3 verse 4. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. So he was coming in order to create an environment in Israel where their offerings to him would once again be pleasing in the sight of God. Now, he had already laid out in the first chapter his displeasure with them and their offerings. Chapter 1 and verse 7, you offer defiled food on my altar. Read that rotten. You offer rotten food on my altar. But say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. When you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us while this is being done by your hands. Will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts. When the Lord rebuked them for bringing their molded wheat and their rotten food and their blind and sick animals that they saw about ready to die, say, quick, grab him up and let's take him up to the temple. God rebuked them for it, obviously. And Israel responded with their arms outstretched, saying, why? Why? What are you talking? What's wrong? And I see every indication in reading the book of Malachi that Israel was sincere in that. They honestly thought that they were going through the required uh, matters of worship. They were doing the required thing. They thought their offerings were fine. And it was no use anymore to them. When they were done with it, when it was of no value to them, (laughs) let me give it to the Lord. 
and they thought that was okay. They were going to temple. They were bringing an offering. No wonder then the Lord promised through Malachi that he was going to come and bring them a surprise visit. He didn't show up unannounced. We can't say that, but we can say, because the Bible says it, his appearance in the temple was going to take them by surprise. Jesus was coming then to offer them a correction to their worship so that their services of him, their tithes, their offerings would be pleasing and acceptable to them, to him in the sight of God. And the text reveals in three things about the sudden appearance of Jesus Christ. And the first thing was that it would require change. And you see that in verse 2. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. The sudden appearance of the Lord then would require change. And it's shown in those two rhetorical questions that he asks. And those types of questions answer themselves. Who can endure? No one. Who will stand? No one. A popular worship song a couple of years ago asked the question, Will I stand in your presence? Or to my knees will I fall? The biblical answer is no. You won't stand in his presence. Yes. You and I will fall to our knees. That is the appropriate response to the Lord Jesus Christ. The word endure or abide refers to continuing on as they were. And the literal presence of Jesus Christ in the temple then would demand a change on their part. A change that for the most part they were unwilling to make. Their lives you see would change from being under the law and regulated by all the principles of the law to being under grace. They would go from being God's own special and unique people to being one with the Gentiles included on an equal basis in the plans and purposes of God. They would go from their sacrificial system, the offering of animals, to the offering of themselves as a living sacrifice unto God. They would go from the glorious temple in Jerusalem to every individual being a temple, a house, a dwelling place of God. As the Spirit of God lives in us. They would go from temple worship to worship in the church in spirit and in truth. You see, they weren't going to endure when the Lord came. He told them right up front. Things were not going to continue on as they were. They were not going to be able to endure as they had been. They could not face the Lord Jesus Christ and his sudden appearance in the temple and go from that saying, well, everything is just going to keep on going like it is. No, it wouldn't. None of them, nothing about their life would endure. When Jesus died, the veil at the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That veil was 30 feet high. Some Jewish historians claim it was four inches thick. The veil was not like a bridal veil. It was like a curtain. However thick it was, can you imagine 30 feet high all the way around that uh, box-shaped room called the Holy of Holy? 
You imagine how heavy that thing was. And it was rent in two. That meant that Judaism was obsolete. And the writer of Hebrews tells us about that in Hebrews 10 and 19. Having then, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest, most holy, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. You see, the coming of Jesus would require that everything uh, about their Jewish system of worship was going to change. Not only that, but it would require their submission to him. And that submission, of course, would be the very opposite of standing before him. They would bow the knee. Now, the concept of bowing the knee in America today has become kind of controversial as a lot of people have taken it as, and made it into something completely opposite to what it was. The bowing of the knee has always symbolized submission. Uh, and now it's being turned into an act of rebellion, which is completely contrary uh, to what it's supposed to be. But uh, I'm, I'm not going to preach about that this morning. Just one of many things that uh, is being turned around in our culture today. Bowing the knee is all about submission. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9, God has highly exalted Jesus and given him a name which is above every name, Philippians 2 and 9, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, that every tongue then should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee should bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't be saved if you're sitting down. Because a lot of you could probably give testimony to the fact that you were saved sitting in a pew at church. Doesn't mean you can't be saved standing up. Uh, but there is something to bowing the knee to heaven's king. And the fact is, we all probably ought to do a little bit more of it. I guarantee you when we get to heaven, none of us will begrudge the time that we spend on our knees before Almighty God. Because the fact is, it's just going get, to get you used to doing it uh, because we're going to be doing it a whole lot more, I think, in the presence of God and Jesus Christ. We'll bow before Him. And our tongues then will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, in order to experience the changes that are going to come, when Jesus appeared suddenly in his temple, they were going to have to be willing to change because nobody was going to endure. They weren't just going to continue and abide in the same systems and the same forms of worship and just the same kind of people that they'd always been. No, Jesus was coming and change was coming with him. Part of that change was going to be their submission to him, unfortunately. You know how that story ends. A lot of them refused to bow the knee. A lot of them refused to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this world is still full of people who refuse to bow the knee and who refuse to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, but I want you to know this morning that that doesn't change the absolute incontrovertible fact of Philippians chapter 2 that tells us every knee should bow every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's only a matter of when and what the effects. Uh, you see, 
Uh, every, everybody is going to one day stand before heaven's king and they'll all give an account. They'll all face his judgment and they'll all, everybody, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But if they wait until that time, they will not confess him as Savior. You understand? You see, as death finds us, eternity claims us. And the only way that we can avoid an eternity in hell and be certain of an eternity in heaven is to confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior right now. You can do that where you sit. You say, well, I'd just as soon get up out of my pew and get on my knees. Hey, brother or sister, you go right ahead. Nobody in this church is going to stop you. The sudden appearance of Jesus in would require change, but it would also accomplish change. It's interesting, the two things that the Bible mentions as the means by which he would accomplish this. He will do this, he says, he'll be like a refiner's fire, verse 2, and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. So the promise changes that Jesus is going to make by a sudden appearance requires that people submit to him, that they recognize that they cannot continue as they are, and they must then submit to him, bow the knee to him, because they cannot endure, they cannot stand in his presence. And then he goes on and he says, first of all, that he'll be like the silversmith and the refiner's fire. It's an interesting analogy. You know, silver doesn't come out of the ground as silver. Like anything you'd recognize, it comes out of the ground as ore. Ore. And it has to be crushed. Then it has to be put through the smelter. And then after it goes through that fire, it will come out and it begins to be kind of recognizable as silver. But finally then, at least in the case of the ancient silversmiths, they would put it in that pot. And the silversmith would sit there. He'd heat it, fire it up, and... The dross would rise to the top and it could be skimmed off then and put to the side. It's called slag. And what was left after that process had gone through would be almost pure silver. Uh, some writers have suggested that the silversmith would wait until he could see his reflection in the silver. That sounded real cool, only I couldn't verify it, so I don't know that. What I do know it's what the Bible says, that Jesus Christ will refine us. And that refining process then is compared to the silversmith. One preacher said, God is never far from the furnace where his silver is refined. He will sit as a refiner of silver. Now, Jesus Christ is coming and his coming then was compared to putting us in a pot, turning up the heat, burning away the dross. If that sounds like it would be a painful process, it's because it is a painful process. Nobody likes being under the heat. We like a lot of things from the Lord better than being in his kettle. While he's sitting there removing the dross, the slag our lives fact is most of us would be pretty settled down with uh, that dross that's in our life 
we'd just soon keep some of it, truth be told. We've gotten kind of used to having it around. But the fact is, we don't see how much it keeps us from shining. We, we can't determine how much it, it lessens our value. We don't see how, how much of a shame it is to our master, the silversmith who's doing the work on us. We might be perfectly happy settling down with a little dross. He's not. He's not. We're his. We belong to him. And he is perfectly right in working on us to remove those things that debase us and demeans us and dishonors him. This was especially true of their religious service within the context because remember... God had already talked to them about how their offerings were unacceptable. Their service of God. They were so apathetic toward Him. and They had allowed that spirit to creep into their service of God. And instead of doing what was best and bringing to God their best, they were only bringing what was easy, what they were done with. They were treating God's service as if it was contemptible. When Jesus came, He would purify their heart. Sometimes you see God has to turn up the heat. And I'm glad he didn't just stop there. But he went on and talked about laundry soap. Laundry soap is a lot less threatening than refiner's fire. I don't mind telling you the idea of tide or gain is a whole lot easier for me to comprehend and deal with. Uh, I like that better. I'm glad it's there. Uh, because he said not only will the Lord sometimes turn up the heat, and he will. He does. Sometimes he can just scrub us out. Now, the soap that they used, we might say, well, soap is soap. But the fact is, the soap that they used uh, was made with lye. And uh, what they used in laundry was very, very strong. You know, it was good for getting clothes clean. But remember, they didn't have a washing machine. Most of the time, they washed their clothes on rocks. And uh, you could, it would get their clothes clean. Now, you think about the priests, for example, in the temple. They wore linen garments. Now, can you imagine what that looked like after the men who were responsible for carrying the water up and down that mountain for all of those sacrifices that they had to use? How many trips to the creek did they make? How many times did they have to get out on their knees and, and, and pour up that water? How much of it sloshed? Can you imagine how sweaty and nasty they looked at the end of a day? Linen garments, white. Imagine what the guys looked like who had to tend the fire. They were covered in soot by the end of the day. That wasn't even the challenging part. Imagine the priests that had to offer up the offerings. They were covered in blood at the end of the day. They would use those garments, by the way, for a year, and then they burned them. <laughs> All of you women can understand that. You've probably burned some of your husband's and kids' clothes from time to time. Just give up on them. After a year, they were thrown up into those huge olive oil vats and used as wicks to light up the temple mount on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a glorious time. And the priests all got new clothes. But that lye soap that they used was very effective at removing that very caustic you wouldn't want to take a bath in it. You wouldn't want to wash your hair in it. But it was really, really good for washing clothes. 
And no matter how caustic it is, cleaning clothes is still a much less painful process than being put in a silversmith's pot to be refined by fire. The Apostle Paul describes this cleansing in Ephesians 5. In Ephesians 5, he says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. You see, the way that Jesus was going to accomplish that Purification that was like the refining uh, soap, or, or the use, uh, not the refining, but the, the use of the launderer's soap. The way he was going to accomplish that was by the proclamation of the word of truth. And it is the way that it's still done. When you come to church and you listen to a sermon and you sit in under the preaching of the word, the Holy Spirit uses that like launderer's soap. Now, sometimes preaching is pretty caustic. Yes. It has to be. Some of the stuff we get into on a weekly basis is hard to get out. Some of the stains that's on our heart is hard to get rid of. And let's be honest, some of them have had a long time to set up. You understand what I'm saying today? The good news is that God has soaked to cleanse every stain that sin leaves behind. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That happens to us initially when we're saved. To be saved, we must confess our sins. That means we agree with God that we're a sinner. And we ask him then to forgive us and to be our savior. We don't have to confess every sin we've ever committed in order to be saved. We can't remember them all. What we do have to do is confess that we're a sinner. That's what the, whole, the word of God calls us. We have to agree. And Once we have admitted then that sinfulness, we can call on him and ask him to be our savior and put our trust in him and we receive then his eternal offer of salvation. What can wash away my sins? Thank God the blood of Jesus Christ can do that. But it doesn't stop when we're saved. Even as Christians, we still struggle with sin. And to confess our sins means that when we mess up, we fess up. Real simple. When we mess up, we fess up. When we mess up, we confess it. We say, Lord, I'm sorry. I did it. Uh, it's no easier confessing to God than it is to confess to somebody else when we've messed up and we've sinned against them or wronged them in some way. I, I know people uh, who just don't seem to be able to say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Folks like that are hard to live with, and they usually end up being pretty lonely, but it's not easy to do. We don't like having to say, I was wrong. 
What I did was wrong. I did you wrong. I'm sorry. It's no easier to say that to God than it is to say it to our spouse or to our brothers or sisters or a friend or our neighbors or a boss. When we confess our sin, when we say, God, God, I'm sorry, we admit that we're wrong. Then we learn that God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. Cleanse us. God doesn't spend the rest of our life rubbing it in. Folks, he rubs it out. He rubs it out. Word of God has a powerful way of working in us because Hebrews 4 and 12 says that it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart so that the deeper we get into the Word of God, the deeper the Word of God gets into us. You say, well, why do I need to come to church? Well, one of the reasons we come to church, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a minute, is the praising of God, but also it's the preaching of the Word of God. Why? Because that's part of the way that God cleanses us. Now, when we respond to that prompting of the Holy Spirit, when we are listening to a message and the Spirit of God convicts us and and we respond to that, that's good because He is faithful and just to cleanse us. But if we refuse to respond, the kettle's still there. The kettle's still there. He can always put us in there and turn the heat back up. You understand? You see, Jesus saves us, but he's also working then to purify us. And when he does that, when he does that, the Bible says, then their offerings would be pleasing to God. He says that in verse 4. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem would be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. I want to be clear that the New Testament does not require us, obviously, to bring animals to sacrifice because we are saved forever by the offering of Jesus Christ and that was once for all. We don't offer sacrifices anymore, but there are sacrifices we're told to give and to bring. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15, I'm just going to read these to you and leave them there. Hebrews 13 and 15, therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Spiritual sacrifices. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse 9 then, same book, same chapter. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Spiritual sacrifices. A big part of which is our praise. What we like to call worship these days. 
And this is kind of where we've been getting to. So if you've been drifting or maybe getting a little sleepy, I apologize. I'd normally fire it up a little bit more. But in today's case, I'm just going to have to ask you to kind of hunt back in because this is actually what I call the message and offering pleasing to God. This is where we're getting to. You see, the offerings, the sacrifices in the Old Testament, uh, they're, they're, they're not really the same. We, we don't do that like they did. Primarily, our sacrifices to God are the sacrifices of praise, worship. The question you see for us this morning is not whether or not the worship moves me. It's not whether I like it. The question is, does the worship please God? And Malachi said very plainly, and as he warned Israel about it, I think he reached across the centuries to warn us about it as well, that it's possible for our offerings not to please God at all. We could bring something that we like, but maybe God wouldn't like it. And the big reason why God was not pleased with their offerings was because their heart wasn't right. Their heart wasn't right. You see, when we come to church and maybe we're not getting into the worship, it may not be Brother Bill's fault. It may not even be the preacher's fault may not be the kind of music we sing. It may be our own heart. God knows what we were doing last night. God knows what we did yesterday. He knows what we did all week, where we went, what we said, what we did, what we thought about, what we watched, what we listened to. God knew. God sees it all. And if we've let those things kind of sink down in our hearts, God knows it. We come here then and try to sing, Oh, how I love Jesus. We're just like Israel of old saying, What? What? What do you mean? What do you mean there's something wrong, God? What, what do you mean that I've treated your table as contemptible? What do you mean? What? I'm here. Well, the old song that we've sung for generations about the blood of Jesus and some of the new songs that we sing about the blood of Jesus still is applicable today as it's ever been. And just because you're saved this morning, you're a child of the King, just because you're a part of the family of God and maybe even a member of this church, doesn't necessarily mean that our hearts are right with the Lord. He will sit, Malachi says, as a refiner of silver. He'll pick up his launderer's soap and go to work on us. He'll use both of them. 
so that our offerings then will be acceptable to Him. And God help us this morning to see that this all starts when we bow the knee. And we understand that I just can't keep on acting like everything's fine. I can't keep going through the motions. And it's time to change. It's time to change. Let's stand together.